Hi, how's it going? Nice to see all of you. This is uh, week number two of a run of messages that we call Authentic. We're studying together the Old Testament prophets, learning from their example of what it looks like for us to live an authentic life in the year 2008. Some writing by Shevin and Carrie Harney and John Ortberg were influential in my preparation of this message. And I just want to dive right in. If you've got a notes page, you can follow along on there. Also, if you've got a Bible with you, you could flop that open to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to be in both 1 and 2 Kings today. If you want to follow along with a Bible in your lap, it's going to be real helpful through this whole run. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like some help with getting one of those, just holler at us. We'd love to help you. We've got Bibles around And uh, we'd love to get you a text. And we're going to start out today by talking about an invitation to us to actually carry the torch of faith. And you, probably just like me, have bought into this myth about the ancient Greek Olympic Games that says that when it was time for the Olympic Games way back in ancient Greece, that athletes from all around Greece that would be handed a torch with this special flame, each athlete would then run a leg of this very long relay race and would each time pass the torch to the next runner. Eventually, the torch would make it to this altar in Olympia and remain there, but that is a myth. It is not at all true. There was never, as a matter of fact, a relay of any kind organized in the ancient Greek Olympic Games. The idea, as a matter of fact, of any kind of Olympic flame whatsoever was first inaugurated in the 1928 Olympic Games in a place called Amsterdam, a long way from Greece, right? And the Olympic torch relay was first instituted in the 1936 Olympic Games in a place called Berlin, again, a long way from Greece. There is absolutely no Greek heritage whatsoever to this modern-day Olympic torch run that's even happening now. But it really doesn't matter, does it, what did or didn't happen at the original Olympic Games. We're going to look at a torch pass because I love the imagery that happens between Elijah, who we talked about last week, and Elisha, and how we have the very same opportunity to receive the torch of faith from those who have gone before us, and then to pass that torch of faith to those who are coming along behind us. And our big idea for today says this, God invites us, all of us to invest our lives in passing the torch of faith to the next generation and so leave a spiritual legacy. And I'm going to light this torch because um, it's just going to be a real constant reminder for us. And uh, I'm kind of a pyromaniac, okay? I I really love fire. And uh, the bummer, though, is we're contractually obligated never to have open flame in this room. I don't know why. But they say, no open flame in this room. We could lose our lease if we do. And so I'm going to uh, light this torch here. Isn't that fantastic? That's real cool. Yeah. I think when we're done with it here, I'm going to take it and put it in Dana in my bedroom. And we're going to have some fun with that there flame thing. Is that all right, dear? She might be in the nursery today, which might be better for me. And the reason we're lighting this torch of faith here today is because very near the very beginning of time, God lit the torch of his dream of this community, and he passed it on to a human being. That human being's name was Abraham. You remember Abraham. 
And God asked Abraham to pass that torch to his descendants. Abraham was the first of God's covenant people. And Abraham then handed that torch to Isaac, right? Who handed that torch to Jacob, who passed it on to Joseph. And this isn't just a parent-to-child torch pass we're talking about today. Because Moses passed that torch to Joshua. Eli passed the torch on to Samuel. Jesus, he passed the torch on to who? His 12 disciples, didn't he? Paul, he passed the torch to Timothy. And that's how it went. Because God's plan has always been for his followers to be torch bearers and torch passers. We're not just torch keepers. And there's this very real sense for we who follow Jesus today that God's dream and that God's work is at risk every single generation. As we wonder, will the previous generation make a successful pass of the torch to the following generation? And will the following generation pick it up and will they carry it on and will they pass it down? And this passing the torch thing, it does not happen automatically. It does not happen by osmosis. You are here today because a person or a group of people handed the torch of faith to you, right? And in every single generation, from Abraham's to this one, somebody passed the torch to somebody else without a single generation skipped, missed, or neglected. That's how you and I come to be here today. And as we talk together today about these matters, it seems a very natural thing for us to do to ask ourselves the following questions. Do I... You have people in your life who you are passing the torch of faith onto. Think about that. Do you have people in your life who you're passing the torch of faith to? Then ask yourself this question. Do I have people who I am investing myself in day in and day out? Do I have people who I am investing myself in day in and day out? And then ask yourself this question. Am I investing myself well into those people? Am I investing myself well into those people. And because we think this is very important, we handed you this orange card. You could grab it now. When you came in, it looks like this. And I'm going to ask you right now, if you would please, to write down at least one name of somebody who you know that you could build into, somebody who you know that you could and probably should be passing the torch of faith to. It might be a couple of people, but at least one name of somebody who you're building into and passing the torch of faith to. And then through the whole course of our time together here today, looking in on the life of this prophet named Elisha, the torch pass that Elijah made to him, would you please be asking yourself, considering asking God, what's just one step that you could take this next week, starting tomorrow, to help you pass the torch of faith to that person who you wrote down, those people whose names you've written down on that card. I invite you to do that. Don't let that pass. It is a big, big deal. And we're going to look, first of all, today at the torch pass that Elijah makes to Elisha. Elisha passes the torch of faith to Elisha. 1 Kings chapter 19. And we're going to pick up the text right where we left Elijah last weekend, if you'll recall. He was at the depths of despair. He was crying out to God, complaining about how awful his life was. And God gives him all new marching orders. And here we pick him up in 1 Kings 19 verse 15. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, that's a fun word to say, Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. 
And just notice that. God tells Elijah to go anoint some kings and then just very casually slips in there. Oh yeah, by the way, I'd also like you to anoint your replacement. How do you think Elijah feels when he hears that little detail, that little tidbit? Because see, up to this point in time, Elijah was God's prophetic point man in all of Israel. He was the man. And as the man, Elijah enjoyed a certain amount of acclaim. His position carried with it a certain amount of power. Now, though, Elijah is being told that he's going to be giving up his position as God's prophetic point man. Elijah, starting right now, is going to have to start acknowledging that a younger man will eventually take over for him. A younger man who may indeed go further even than Elijah did. God says, Elijah, I want you to pass the torch of faith. And Elijah does it. Look at 1 Kings 19.19. So Elijah went and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field. And Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him, threw his cloak across his shoulders, and then walked away. Now, here's the deal. Elijah, he goes down from the mountain of God where he was, Mount Sinai, and he goes to the field, and he sees Elisha plowing. He approaches the last pair of oxen, and everybody knew who Elijah was. And Elijah, he very simply, he just takes his cloak off, and he drapes it around Elisha's shoulders. And notice that the text here makes absolutely no mention of Elijah speaking a single word when he does that. He just does that. That'd be pretty weird if somebody walked up to you and just put their shirt, their cloak over your shoulders, right? He just tosses his cloak across Elisha's shoulders, turns, and walks away. That'd be weird. Now, if you grew up reading the King James Bible, the version that Jesus actually used, just kidding, he did not, (laughs) you'd know the word cloak if you grew up reading the King James Bible as the word mantle Instead, Elijah threw his mantle on Elisha. You may have heard that phrase, mantle of leadership, before. That phrase comes right from this text. In a very visible, tangible way, Elijah says to Elisha, I am inviting you by me, placing my cloak over your shoulders, to follow me and to learn from me. I want to walk with you. I want to teach you. I want you to watch what I do, and then we'll go do that together. I want to invest in you. I want to give you responsibility. I want to pass the torch to you so that one day you will actually do this all on your own. And Elijah's invitation to Elisha, it is a very big deal. Did you happen to notice the number of oxen that there are out in that field with Elisha? In that day and in that culture, most families were just poor enough that they may have had just a few chickens to their name. To have owned even one ox in that day, in that culture, was quite rare. But to have 12 team of oxen, which is how many? 24 math geniuses, way to go, 24. That was almost unheard of. And a very strong indication that Elisha's family were people of immense wealth. They've got a place in Triple Tree, as a matter of fact, a little weekend spot down at the YC, a summer place up on Whitefish Lake. These are very wealthy people, which means that what Elijah is inviting Elisha to involves enormous sacrifice. While the text is very near silent about Elijah's background, he was very likely from a poor family. So for him, being a prophet was not a difficult decision. He did not have a lot of other career options. The career telephone for Elijah was not ringing off of the hook. Elisha, though, is quite another story. 
He's got a lot of other, probably better, career options. All he has to do, see, is stand by, and he's got it made in the shade. He's going to inherit a way of life that will keep him more than comfortable for the rest of his days. And Elijah is supposed to ask Elisha to give all of that up, to trade all of that for a job that will involve poverty and rejection, the opposition of stubborn kings who really just want him dead, as a matter of fact. It would have been real, real easy for Elijah just to have said, God, I think you've made a mistake on this deal. There's absolutely no way that Elisha's going to walk away from a future like he's got to follow a prophet like me. He's got way too many other attractive career options. You've got the wrong guy. I'm not even going to ask, God. But Elijah does ask. And because he does, Israel, and as a matter of fact, the world is changed. It's a great example of one of the guiding principles of my life, one that I picked up not even all that long ago from a friend of mine, and it's this. Never say no for the other guy. Never say no for the other guy, or gal for that matter. When it comes to the work of God, never ever say no for anybody. Never assume that somebody doesn't want to get involved, that somebody doesn't want to learn, that somebody doesn't want to grow, that somebody doesn't want to serve, that somebody doesn't want to give, that somebody doesn't want to belong. We never know who is just one conversation, one invitation away from being a torchbearer. See, Elijah, he refuses to say no for the other guy, and he makes the ask of Elisha. And Elisha, he responds by asking if he can first go say goodbye to his parents. And look at what Elijah says, 1 Kings 19, 20, part B, go on back, but think about what I have done to you. This is Elijah's way of letting Elisha know that he's not going to use any guilt. He's not going to use any pressure. He's not going to coerce Elisha's decision in any way. This must be Elisha's freely made decision. Elijah is saying, look, I'm doing the inviting, I'm doing the asking, but the decision is all up to you, Elisha. Now, absolutely no show of hands. Like, place your hands firmly on your laps, if you would. But have you ever heard of a church using guilt or pressure to get people to volunteer for something? I remember one time seeing a videotape of a pastor, and he's telling a story about a pastor he knows of who tried to manipulate the people in his congregation to serve as kids' ministry teachers, Sunday school teachers, by using guilt. And this pastor, one weekend, he pulled out all of the stops. One weekend service, he stood up and said to the congregation, statistics show that most fourth graders who do not have a Sunday school teacher end up with a drug problem. And see, this pastor needed a fourth grade Sunday school teacher... Unfortunately, his act of guilt and manipulation did not work. Nobody signed up to teach the fourth grade Sunday school class. And so the next weekend, this pastor, not to be dissuaded, he got downright ugly as he paraded Susie out onto the stage. She happened to be a fourth grader. And he said, here's Susie. And Susie, unfortunately, it is so sad, does not have a Sunday school teacher. And she's here today to tell us about her drug problem. Elijah uses no such tactics with Elisha. He doesn't use any guilt, doesn't use any pressure, doesn't use any coercion. Just, this is your call, Elisha. This is your call. And quite amazingly, against all odds, Elisha actually joins 
Elijah. He walks away from everything that he had known. Elisha, see, volunteers for what he is going to do. And that word volunteer is a big word. It comes from the Latin word volantis, which means will or choice to choose, as a matter of fact. Now, we often think as the word of the word volunteer as simply someone who doesn't get paid, but it is not anywhere near that cut and dry. At its core, volunteer means something incredibly deep and profound. See, a volunteer is somebody who freely embraces a task, a burden, a responsibility, even though they don't have to, even though they have lots of other options. They choose to devote themselves willingly. And the reason that this volunteerism thing is such a big deal around Journey Church, the reason it is such a big deal to we who follow Jesus, the reason that lots and lots of Christ followers lead the way on the volunteerism thing is because that's who we are at our core. See, we are volunteers at our core. Here's why. It's because we're created in the image of a God, watch this, who voluntarily gives of himself to people. Get that. We're created in the image of of God who voluntarily gives of himself to people. Jesus said it best in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. The Father loves me. These are Jesus' words. Because I sacrifice my life so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. Look at this. I sacrifice it voluntarily. Jesus' words. Jesus volunteered. He put his hand in the air for the assignment of laying down his life so that you and I and every person on the planet could have the opportunity to know God personally. So that we could have our very own relationship with him. And he invites we who follow him to do the very same thing. The church, see, fundamentally at its core is a volunteer deal. And that is a beautiful thing. We, as Christ followers, through our volunteerism, through our service as the church, through the church, we reflect the image of a God who voluntarily devotes himself to people. Imprint that on your mind. Carry that with you. We reflect the image of a God who voluntarily devotes himself to people. He didn't have to. He doesn't have to, but he did. And it is a very significant event, back to 1 Kings, when Elisha volunteers, and so they hold a ceremony, a great big barbecue, as a matter of fact. Look at verse 21. So Elisha returned to his oxen, and he slaughtered them. Wow, that's strong language. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire, other strong words, to roast their flesh. This is very vivid. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. And the pita folks, they protested, and the vegetarians went hungry on this particular day, right? Do you have any idea how much meat is in a side of beef? Just imagine how many people you could feed with two whole oxen. These are beasts. Elisha, he feeds a bunch of people, and the party comes to a close. Look at the end of verse 21. And then Elisha went with Elijah as his assistant. And we see the humility of Elisha right from the beginning. And as you and I are working at passing the torch of faith to those who are coming up behind us, we ought to be on the lookout for people with the traits of Elisha, traits like a coachable spirit, 
Traits like a person who is eager to grow and to learn. Hungry is the word that I use a lot to describe those sorts of people. I don't mean physically hungry. They're humble. They're eager to grow. They're eager to learn. They're hungry after that kind of input. See, you also want somebody who is incredibly humble. Get this. Don't forget this. Humility matters. Elisha, he is so eager to learn, so hungry to grow, that he signs on to be Elijah's assistant. And that's what makes this relationship between Elijah and Elisha work so well. The humility that goes both ways. Elijah doesn't claim to be the only prophet of God. Elisha doesn't demand to be the up-and-coming star. They become together passers of the torch. Flip over to the book of 2 Kings if you've got a text. And we're going to pick 2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to pick up the story of Elijah and Elisha as their ministry continues some years later. They've been together now for a long time. This is quite a bit later than the 1 Kings account. And look at 2 Kings chapter 2 starting in verse 1. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, that'd be quite a ride, Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal. And here we see they're traveling from Gilgal, and Elijah begins this very strange journey. Look at verse 2. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to Bethel. But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went down together to Bethel. They leave Gilgal. Now they're going to Bethel. Look at verse 4. Then Elijah, they got to Bethel. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to Jericho. But Elisha replied again, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went on together to Jericho. So they started at Gilgal. They went to Bethel. Now they're going to Jericho. They arrive at Jericho. Look at verse 6. And Elijah says to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to the Jordan River. But again... Elisha replied, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went on together. Now, why did they go on this weird journey together? My opinion is one reason. Elijah is trying to lose Elisha. You just lose him, right? Probably not. Elijah probably has a lot going on. Maybe he wants to face death alone. Maybe Elijah is afraid that what's coming down the pike is just going to be way too much for Elisha to face. Maybe it's a test of some kind. We don't know. But whatever the reason, the narrator includes it here in 2 Kings to show that Elisha proves to be a follower of unshakable, get this, loyalty. Unshakable loyalty. He will not abandon Elijah no matter where the journey takes him. Whatever Elijah has to face, the two of them, they're going to face it together, like the master, like the servant. Notice that there's no jealousy, there's no rivalry, so that when it comes time to pass the torch of faith, it happens properly, rightly, with beauty even. Elijah and Elisha, they share this very deep loyalty to each other, between the one who is building into, the one who is being built into, the one who is passing the torch on, the one who is grabbing hold of the torch. And Elijah and Elisha, they experience this extraordinary oneness, this incredible sense of community. When something good happens, they rejoice together. When something bad happens, they mourn together. For Elijah and Elisha, this is so much more than just getting a job done. They are deeply devoted to each other. And that's worth us looking at. That's worth us talking about as a community because lots and lots of us in this room, 
are in some relationship with somebody, some mentor, some group of people. Maybe it's a small group. It might be a ministry team that you serve on. And you have that very same spirit that Elijah and Elisha share. Please, whatever you do, do not take that spirit for granted. Do not take that spirit for granted. When that depth of relationship, when that depth of loyalty emerges, that is a gift from God, and it should be guarded and protected and prayed for and nurtured and sought after more. And we ought to be on high alert for any indication, any lights on the dashboard flashing that says that that relationship in any way is starting to crack. And we should be all over that, all over that. And in verse 8, We see Elijah and Elisha, they come to the Jordan River, and they understand that their time together is very short. And we see Elijah, he folds his cloak together in verse 8, and he struck the water with it. And get this, that is the very same cloak, that is the very same mantle that Elijah had draped over Elisha back at his initial invitation to him. It was a long time in the rearview mirror now. And he folds that thing up and he strikes the water of the Jordan River and an amazing thing happens. Just like the river separated for Moses and for Joshua, it does the very same thing for Elijah. And Elijah and Elisha, they cross over on dry ground. And Elijah, he does a wonderful thing in their waning moments together. Notice that Elijah doesn't give Elisha a bunch of orders. He doesn't babble on with a lot of advice. Instead, he simply asks Elisha a question. Look at verse 9. When they came to the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken away. That is a fantastic question. That's the question that all of us, that all torch passers need to be asking What can I do for you to help you attain the level that God is inviting you to play at? What's lacking to make you really effective? How can I help you? How can I serve you? What can I do for you? And what we see here, as with any great question, this question is also a bit of a test. Look at what Elisha asked for in verse 9. Elisha replied, Please let me inherit a double share of your spirit and become your successor. Now, Elisha's answer to Elijah can sound quite confusing if we don't understand the context rightly. When Elisha says, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit, it almost sounds as if what Elisha is saying is, however much of the Holy Spirit you have, I want twice as much. I want two times as much power as you have. I want to do twice as many miracles as you did, Elijah. Sometimes people have even interpreted this text to mean that the Holy Spirit can be distributed in differing percentages, like you're 23% filled, and you're 36% filled, and I'm like 7% filled, and Billy Graham, he's probably in the high 90s of Holy Spirit filling, right? Something like that. That is not the teaching here. It is not the idea here. Instead, Elisha is using classic Old Testament inheritance language as he makes his request, and it's just that, it's a request of Elijah. All the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, God gave the people of Israel the laws of inheritance. And God says that the heir, usually the firstborn son, is to receive a double share of the inheritance. So to ask for the double share is to ask, first of all, to be someone's heir, and then to receive that which is to go to the heir. Elisha, he uses the words explicitly, let me inherit. 
He's not asking for two helpings of the Holy Spirit. Instead, he's saying to Elijah, I want to be your heir. I've watched your life. I've watched your ministry. I've seen your devotion to God. I've seen the difference that you've made because you love God and because you serve God. I've seen the difference that you've made in the life of God's people. I've seen for a long, long time, Elijah, the grip that this idolatry and this Baal worship thing, which we talked about last weekend, has had on this nation. And it's beginning to crumble, Elisha goes on, because of what God has done through you. I believe so much, Elijah, in what you're doing that I want as best I can to devote my life to carrying on your work after you're long gone. I want to try with everything in me to do what you've done so well because it is so worth giving my life to. But Elisha says, I can't do that on my own. I'm way too inadequate. I'm way too fallen. I'm way too broken. I need the help of God's spirit. I need to know God and I need to walk with God and I need to be empowered by God, Elijah, just like you've been. Elisha, he asks for precisely the right thing, doesn't he? And just think about that would have done in the heart of Elijah to know that after he's long gone, there's still going to be a human being on the planet who has this longing to serve God and to please God and is willing to sacrifice so much to devote himself to that one task. Look at verse 10. Elijah says, you've asked a difficult thing, but here's the deal. If you see me when I am taken from you, then you will get your request. But if not, then you won't. And the narrator here introduces this very strong tension into the text. And the tension lies in the fact, can you feel it, that not only is Elisha about to lose Elijah, but now he's not even sure if his ministry is just beginning or is about to come to a very abrupt end. Look at verse 11. And as they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared drawn by horses of fire. God sent the limo didn't he? A chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, separating them, and Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. Heck of a ride. Heck of a ride. And apparently, Elisha, he does not die, but instead is taken directly to God, which is a tremendous affirmation of a life very well lived. And here's the crux. Look at verse 12. Elisha saw it. Notice that. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, I see the chariots and charioteers of Israel. And as they disappeared from sight, Elisha tore his clothes in distress. And can you imagine that moment for Elisha? He saw it, didn't he? He saw the whole thing. And he is staggered and amazed by what he sees. And he realizes because of what he's seen, that he will indeed carry on Elijah's work. The torch is going to keep burning through Elisha. But then it hits him just like a ton of bricks. Oh, my word. Elijah, he's gone. Like, long gone. This man who changed his life, this man who put his mantle on him, this man who believed in him, this man who taught him and loved him, he's gone. And Elisha will not ever see him again this side of heaven. And so that's why Elisha tore his clothes. It is a sign of unbelievable grief, unbelievable sorrow. Look at verse 13. Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak, which had fallen when he was 
taken up. Then Elisha returned to the bank of the Jordan River. This is such a beautiful detail of the text. Elijah's cloak, that mantle, got left behind. And can you picture Elisha kneeling down in the dust and picking that thing up? And as he did that, I'm sure he was thinking about everything that Elijah had done in his whole life while wearing that same mantle, while wearing that same cloak. And he just walks back to the Jordan River. Look at verse 14. And he struck the water with Elijah's cloak and he cried out, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And notice that Elisha is leaning very heavily on the faith of his mentor, Elijah. He's long gone, but he's still clinging to the faith of his mentor. And he strikes the water. And you think about Elisha holding that cloak and that mantle. In our modern context, it'd be a lot like a kid who just got their driver's license, right? And they're going to take the car for the first time all by himself or all by herself. Mom or dad tosses that kid the keys. And the kid gets in the car and turns the ignition. And off he or she goes, right? And here we see, off Elisha goes. The water parts, just like it parted for Moses, just like it parted for Joshua, just like it parted for Elijah. And we see that Elisha carries and actually passes the torch of faith. He does it. He gets it. Elisha goes on to live this extraordinary life. In chapter 3, we see him dictating battle strategies to the kings of Israel and Judah. Just like Elijah before him, he challenges kings fearlessly. He is in their face. In chapter 4, he cares for a widow, just like Elijah had before him. You can read all this on your own. I'd invite you to do that sometime. Also in chapter 4, I want to show you another group that Elisha cares for. Look at 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 38 and following. Elisha, he returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in that region. While the company of the prophets, get that phrase in your head, company of the prophets was meeting with him, he said to his servant, put on the large pot and cook some stew for these men. Apparently they were out of oxen. There were no oxen to slaughter to feed the prophets. It's like, ah, the prophets are over. We'll have stew tonight instead, right? So one of them goes out into the fields, gathers herbs, and found a wild vine. He gathered some of its gourds, filled the fold of his cloak. When he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew. And can you just picture this? Though no one knew what they were, he's like, he brings them all back. He's like, anyone know what these are? And they're like, no, we don't have any idea. So he just cuts them up and puts them in the stew, right? And the stew was poured out for the men. Watch this. But as they began to eat it, they cried out, Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. Like, that's seriously bad stew. (laughs) Right? Husbands, never ever say that to your wife. Honey, there is death in the pot. Because if you do that, there's going to be death in the kitchen. Right? There is death in the pot, and they could not eat it. But Elisha, he's got a fix. He just says, well, get some flour. He put it into the pot and said, serve it to the people to eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Just add a little flour and it fixes everything, right? Only if you're Elisha. But notice that phrase, the company of the prophets. Notice, this is not a king. This is not an impoverished widow. This is Elisha building into another generation of prophets, just like Elijah built into him so that that torch of faith will be passed again. That's what torch passers do, see. That's how torch passers roll, as a matter of fact. One more story from the life of Elisha, if you've got it. You got it in you? One more story? Second Kings chapter 6. You can flip over there. 
Here we see this king of Aram. He keeps trying to kill the king of Israel, but every time Elisha keeps being warned by God, who then goes on to tell Israel's king about this threat, the king of Israel then escapes the advancing Aram army. This happens a whole bunch of times. Look at verses 11 and 12. And the king of Aram became very upset because that's how all of this was working. He wasn't ever able to kill the Israelite king. So he calls his officers together and demanded, which of you is the traitor who has been informing the king of Israel of my plans? He thinks he's got a mole in the outfit. It's not us, my lord, the king, one of the officers replied. Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom, God's got his room bugged, see, He passes on all the intel God does to Elisha. And so look at what the king of Aram does in verses 13 and 14. He says, go and find out where he is. That's Elisha, the king commanded. So I can send troops to seize him. And the report came back, Elisha is at Dothan, Alabama. No, just Dothan. So one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. The king of Aram, he sends an entire army after one guy, Elisha. And he surrounds the city of Dothan where he is. Look at verses 15 and 16. And when the servant of the man of God, that's Elisha's servant, got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. And he cries out, Oh, sir, what will we do now? This is going to be a bad day, he's thinking. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. And if you're Elisha's assistant, you're like looking around when he says that, right? And this is real strange what Elisha just said here, right? Because he's counting how many are on our side. And he's going, oh, there's two. (laughs) Just two, right? But they, Elisha, you see, they've got the whole city surrounded. Look at verse 17, though. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, He saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and with chariots of fire. And just imagine that moment. Elisha's servant caught a glimpse of what Elisha had been looking at for some time. Horses and chariots of fire. And Elisha, he's seen those before, hasn't he? He knows whose those are. And he knows God is with him. He is far from alone. And here we see... Another example of Elisha building into his assistant, building up his faith, giving him courage, passing the torch of faith onto his young assistant. But the story doesn't end there. This is really cool. Look at verse 18. As the Aramean army advanced toward them, they're now coming in. They're going to scoop up Elisha and take him away, probably kill him. And Elisha prays, oh Lord, please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness, just as Elisha had asked. And then, this is crazy, Elisha went out and told them, you have come the wrong way. This is the very guy who they're after, and he just, they're blind, and so he can just march right out to them and say, you've come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. Follow me. I will take you to the man who you are looking for. That's funny to me. And he leads the whole Aramean army to the city of Samaria, the capital of Israel, the very last place they ever want to be. And as soon as he leads them into Samaria, Elisha prayed, Oh Lord, now open their eyes and let them see and be freaked out. (laughs) And so the Lord opened their eyes and they discovered that they were in the middle of Samaria. And the king of Israel was there and he saw them and he shouted to Elisha, My father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? Of course not, Elisha replied. Do we kill prisoners of war? No, 
We throw parties for prisoners of war. We kill oxen. Let's have a barbecue, right? Here we go. Give them food and drink. Send them home again to their master. So the king, look what he does. He makes a great feast for them, and he sends them home to their master. After that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. They're like, we ain't going there again. That's crazy what happens there. And kings and widows and orphans and prophets and even armies of the opponent are changed. And they're changed all because one day a prophet obeyed God and stopped an incredibly wealthy farmer plowing in a field, threw his cloak, threw his mantle on him and passed the torch of faith to him. Are you doing that? Are you passing the torch of faith? Who are you building your life into? Who are you building your faith into? Who are you praying for in those veins? Who have you invited up alongside of you to work with you? Who's going to get your cloak? Who's going to get your mantle when you're long gone? This is such a big deal. This is such a big deal. Because God's vision for his community, for us, for his church, rises and falls on the torch being passed. Journey Church rises and falls on the torch of faith being passed to the next generation. Because see, God's church since the very beginning of time has continued to exist from the very first day until today because in every single generation, somebody made the decision to pass the torch of faith. Somebody else made the decision to carry the torch of faith. And from our earthly human perspective, God's whole dream of the church is just one generation away from extinction unless we, all of us, every single one of us in this room, continue to pay the price, and it's expensive, to pass the torch of faith to those who are coming behind us. Will you do it? Will you do it? I invite you to just take your things, if you would, please, and set them aside. I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads, and would you just speak to the Lord about what it is that you're thinking about? Just tell God what's on your heart and on your mind. You can do that now, if you would. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, please, to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for the next few moments we've got together. You might be sitting in this room today and it's really, really tough for you to imagine passing the torch of faith in God to somebody else because you don't yet have your own relationship with God. You're not yet a bearer of the torch. I want you to know though today that it doesn't have to stay that way. You can receive the torch of faith in God today. See, God loves you so incredibly much that he voluntarily made a way for you to have a relationship with him. He voluntarily made a way for you to be a bearer of the torch. And he did that by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as payment for your sin, to be your savior, to be the rescuer of your soul. And you can become a bearer of the torch today by putting your faith and your trust in him. 
You can begin a friendship with God today, right now, right where you're sitting. And if that's you, if that's a decision that you know you need to make today, a step of faith you need to take today, I'd invite you just to express that to God by praying along with me right where you're sitting, a prayer that goes like this. God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned in ways that I shouldn't have. But today, God, I realize that you are perfect, that you are holy, that my sin has separated me from you. And I believe, God, with everything in me, that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And I ask you to please forgive me. Please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I want you to be my friend. I want you to change me. I want you to clean my life up, please, God. I want to live an authentic life with you and for you. And today, God, I make you the boss of my life. And if you prayed with me just then to yield your life to God, to invite Jesus Christ into your life, it's a big deal. The biggest deal of your whole life, as a matter of fact. And it's such a big deal that around here, we actually ask people to tell us when they made that decision. And so I'm going to ask you to do that with me, if you would. I want you to know that nobody's looking around and nobody's going to embarrass you in any way. But if you prayed with me just then to give your life to God, would you be so bold just to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me? Say, yes, I became a bearer of the torch today. Way to go, you and you. Way to go. You became bearers of the torch just then. God came into your life and is changing the whole course of your existence. Life will never be the same for you. Just make sure I catch your eye. I don't want to miss anybody. It's too big a moment. Yeah, right back there. Way to go. God is changing you and making you new. Yes. God, we say thank you. Thanks for the example of the Elijah-Elisha torch pass. That teaches us. That should change the way we think about our relationships with people around us. How strategic we're being with passing the torch to them. God, I pray that we would desire very much to bear the torch well and to pass it well. Just like Elijah did, just like Elisha did, God. We want to be about handing faith on to the next generation, not just with our kids, not just within our families, but within our community, within our broader context, the people we work with, people we go to school with people who we rub shoulders with day in and day out, God. Give us wisdom there, please. Give us tangible things that we can go step out tomorrow and do, God, with them. Praying for, inviting people alongside, pouring in, meeting with, challenging, God. And I pray that you would continue to challenge us and sharpen us that we would be the sharpest torchbearers we can, that we would reflect your image beautifully 
the image of a God who voluntarily laid down his life for us. We love you. We worship you. We serve you, God. And the church said, amen. We're going to worship our way through music out of our time together today. The ushers are going to come in just a moment, and they're going to receive an offering. Just want you to know, if you're a guest today, there's no obligation to give whatsoever. Some of us, for whom Journey is our home, we're going to give because that's part of who we are and part of what God's invited us to do, but no obligation if you're a guest today. Let's continue to worship through music.